Back in 1998, Wanda Bell of Bellbuckle, Tennessee, was scouring a country auction for deals when she purchased a frame, a framed picture for $25. Uh, she bought it because she wanted the frame. And you know what? 25 bucks, what a deal. Uh, Wanda Bell got exactly what she wanted, but she had no idea what she actually possessed. So she gets home and she's taking the painting apart and she has this inkling that maybe the painting is worth something. I don't know if it's because it was canvas or she felt it was, you know, it was original paint, whatever. Uh, it turns out it was worth something. It turned out to be an original piece of art valued at just over $80,000. And all of us want to go to Bell Buckle and scour the country auctions. When I put my faith in Christ 35 years ago, y'all, I got exactly what I wanted. I wanted to have my guilty conscience cleansed. I wanted my sins to be forgiven. I wanted to know that when I died, I was going to go to heaven. I got exactly what I wanted, but I really had no idea what I actually possessed. And I don't think I'm alone. I think if I asked you, you know, hey, what's your earthly net worth? You know, many, most in the room, you know, would have some level of, oh, I guess what everything I own minus all my debts. This, this is my value. But if I said, tell me about your spiritual net worth. Tell, tell me, in other words, move out of the earthly realm. And I said, tell me about, tell me about what you possess that's the, the eternal spiritual things of life. And I think most of us would have a very hard time getting our minds around that. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Which of those matters more? Which is most important? I mean, the one has to do with our earthly time, doesn't it? You know, the, the average age for a man in the United States is 75.96 years. It's a little older for a woman. So, so we're talking about you know, uh, 76 to 80 years. This is, this is that, that value is in this time frame. Okay, the other one, when I say, how about your spiritual resources and possessions and value? When, when you go there, it's not uh, 70, 70, 80 years. No, no, it's, you know, it's forever. It's not your life on earth. It's your life after your life on earth ends and you live with no end, no end, no end, forever and ever. Well, we all know this, you know, if you know Christ, you know your sins are forgiven. That, that Christ's life, death, and resurrection on your behalf, that it puts you in a right standing with God. That you, when you die, you're gonna, we're going to go to heaven, we're going to be with God forever. But I don't think it's an exaggeration to say most of us aren't aware of of everything that we possess in Christ Jesus. We, we sing, and we sing words like, you're all I need. You're, we sing those things, and you understand that's true. But few of us can fully grasp all that he is. Uh, when we don't, uh, when we don't, know what we already have, 
we spend our whole lives trying to get what is already ours. When we spend our whole lives trying to get what is already ours, we miss the very life we were made for. And when we miss the very life that we were made for, the life we make for ourselves leaves us empty. All because we don't know what we already Well, we are beginning a letter today that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And he knew that they were much like us in that they didn't fully know. Know that you know that you know all that they had in Christ Jesus. And so in this letter, it's six chapters, he begins to exhaust his vocabulary to help them come to some grasp of all they have in Christ. And he'll use words like this, lavished. <laughs> hey, you've been lavished, chapter one, verse eight. He says, it's, you, you understand the surpassing greatness chapter one, verse 19. Do you understand you have, he goes in chapter three, surpassing Passing riches in Christ Jesus. He repeats the word fullness, full over and over. And perhaps my favorite, chapter 3, verse 8, he calls what we have unfathomable riches. Men and women, that's, you know, that's, there's no end to the riches that we possess. All of this to help us know all that we have is all that we need in Christ Jesus. New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, he says of this book, among Pauline writings, I'm quoting him, among Pauline writings, only Romans can match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. End quote. Ephesians. And I think it's in large part because Paul addresses the core issue of our identity, of our identification, and all that means in Christ. I'm going to over, not overview the letter per se, but just introduce it. Um, we're going to take the first two verses of the book of Ephesians in a moment. But, you know, when we study a book, and by the way, we're going to be in this book for 31 weeks. Take us all the way through August. And uh, we want to begin just a, a little bit of spade work, some groundwork, foundational work on, you know, the audience. Who are these Ephesians? Where do they live? What was it like where they lived? I mean, what did they face? You know, what was their challenges? So that we understand, as Paul writes this letter, who he is writing to and the purpose for which he writes. Ephesus, the city itself, it was one of the most important cities uh, in the ancient world. I've got a map up here. I'm going to show you. Uh, you know, get Italy over here so you know where you are, Mediterranean Sea. Ephesus, here's Jerusalem down here. Ephesus is right here. This is Turkey, by the way, today. But Ephesus, coastal city, the river Caister ran down, emptied into the Aegean Sea, and there was the city of Ephesus. It was an economic thoroughfare. It was a cultural influence, spiritual influence in the whole area. And in part, certainly by its location, notice this 
is what they call the gateway to Asia Minor. Everything that came inland came through Ephesus. When, when goods traveled, many, many times traveled from Rome, uh, from Europe, and came down to northern Africa, this is the path they took. Ephesus, touching there, coastal sea, all the way down to northern Africa. So, so Ephesus, I, I want you to see it visually, to, to know that this place had a tremendous uh, influence on the world around it. It was, by the way, the leading city to learn and practice dark magic. I mean, this place like a satanic petri dish. You know, people went there to get this stuff. You know, and it helps us understand some of the things that Paul says later. So dominant was this, in fact, that um, when, when, when there were letters written that had incantations or magical spells and formulas in the ancient world, they often called those Ephesian letters because that's what Ephesus was known for. Uh, two of the more prominent architectural features of Ephesus that, that, that come into our you know, story itself, uh, the first would be the theater in Ephesus, which w- was magnificent. Y'all, there's a person down here on the bottom, so you can you know, get some level of the size of this thing. The thing would hold 25,000 people. I mean, that's, that's big in our day. It was massive in that day. The, 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 the second structure in Ephesus was the temple to Artemis or the temple to Diana. Now, uh, Diana worship, uh, you know, we're going to read something in a moment. It'll give you some idea. It, 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 was, it covered the world. Uh, and it's really weird. I mean, you look at pictures of her and, you know, she's, it's this multi-breasted, you know, they think it was a meteorite that fell from the sky, crazy whacked out. Well, that, she was a god. They worshipped her. It's a cult worship of uh, Artemis. Well, the, 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 her temple was in Ephesus. And it's, it helps us because we have the Parthenon in downtown Nashville. Well, the temple of Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon. So you get, you get an idea. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. This thing was massive. It was huge. We find both of these structures mentioned uh, in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts tells us how in the world did the church at Ephesus get started. Okay, so Paul writes a letter to this church at Ephesus. Well, where did those guys come from? How did that whole thing begin? And as we begin the study of that book, it helps us to look at their beginning. So rather than go to Ephesians, would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts? The book of Acts chapter 19. This is Paul's third missionary journey. And the church had gotten started. Um, Paul's coming through on his third missionary journey. There's a group of people there. They're forming as a community of faith. And uh, we pick up this story. And I'm going to read parts of uh, chapter 19, if you'll follow along with me. And I'm doing this to give us some idea of who, you know, the people who originally read the letter. uh, uh, What kind of struggles did they have? What were they like? What was going on culturally in that day? What did Paul teach? All those things that give us the groundwork for our study of the book itself. Notice, begin in verse 8. And he, this is Paul, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, the way is the way of Christianity, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, those who were 
He was learning. They were learners. He took them away, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now think about the map I just showed you, that to the right of Ephesus, that's Asia Minor. It's saying he spent two years in Ephesus and everybody over there, you know, the word spread through that time. Two years he's there teaching, explaining. We'll see some of what he was teaching and explaining in a moment. Well, there were those, by the way, and let's keep this in mind, wherever the gospel goes, there are those who reject it. This is life. There are those who reject it, and Paul moves on and continues to teach those who listen. Then something really crazy happens. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. In other words, they didn't know Christ, but they knew that Paul was casting out demons in the name of Christ. So they come up to someone with a demon and they talk to the demon and say, come out of this person by the, you know, the guy that Paul knows, Jesus. That guy, come out by him. Okay. Now notice what happens. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? I think that's funny. You know, they, this demon literally says, I don't even know who you are, but I know Paul and I know Jesus. He goes on to overpower them. They run out naked. It, it's, it's funny to me, I guess, but it's serious. But here's the thing that there were people in Ephesus. Can I say this? That um, they look, you know, let's say it this way. They look like Christians, but they weren't. Boy, and the demon knew. In other words, I'll say it this way for us, get into a modern day vernacular. There, there were people who went to church in Ephesus too, but they didn't know Christ. There are people in Ephesus who could say the spiritual, the Jesus things, but they didn't know Christ. But as it says, the word of God continued to spread. Then uh, uh, probably the most dramatic event occurs in verse 23. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. Stop right there. The temple of Artemis, it was an economic engine. It was like Gatlinburg, you know, or so, you know, it was <laughs> trinkets and you could press your pennies and get a picture of dining. You know, it was just these, and they're making money. This was the, the economy was huge, built upon it. And notice he says, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also, almost all of Asia, this Paul guy, here's Paul again, has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. And that she whom all Asia, see, they, they think all of Asia is worshiping her. And in fact, they were much of it. All Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The, the, the mob goes nuts. When they realize, hey, we're going to lose our business if these Christians quit buying our goods and telling other people that idols are no gods at 
all. And they drag them into the theater, okay? The theater we just looked at. They're, they're all in there screaming, yelling for blood. They put a guy, Alexander, out, and he starts to speak. And he goes, that guy's a Jew, and they're going to kill him. You know, they're going crazy. And finally, the mayor stands up and says, calm down. Hey, if, we have a, if you have a problem with these people, take it to the courts, and the courts will resolve this. But if you guys keep this up, the Romans are going to come and crush us again. And it, all of that tells us this about the city of Ephesus. Here's why I read all that, okay? It tells us that Ephesus is a very religious spiritual city. It is an influential city. Now, you know, what happens in Ephesus doesn't stay in Ephesus. See, it just go, everything goes, goes. And it's an artistic, creative city. All these artisans. That sounds like Nashville. And it really does. You could say all of that about where we live and where God has put us. What's undeniable when you just read this very short account is that the Christians in Ephesus lived their faith in such a way that it made a ruckus. Let's just call it that for now. And it's interesting, you notice, I'm not going to belabor this, but you know, they, they, they engaged the culture and things started happening not because, and this is not, this is not a bad thing to do, but it's not because they said, hey, let's Let's run for office. I'll be the mayor, and that way I'll be a Christian mayor, and I can help. They didn't do it that way. I'm just saying, they, what did they do? Mm, they just lived by faith. Uh, they just listened to what Paul taught, and then they lived it. And as they lived that way, oh, my gosh, the city itself got quite upset. When Paul left them for good, I want you to note what he says to the church. One final verse in Acts. Acts 20, verse 27. It's a very tearful goodbye. He's leaving these people that he's been pouring his life into. And, you know, he's been teaching them the word. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. What was he doing for two years? Declaring to them the whole purpose of God. How is it they had such an influence on their culture? Paul just declared to them the whole purpose of God. And I, and I sit there and go, what did he teach them? What was the secret? You know, what, 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 were the, what were the truths that transformed these people? What, 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 what was it, Paul? Well, it'd be about 10 years later, after he said goodbye, Paul would take out his pen. And he'd start writing a letter to the Ephesians. And it's not a far stretch, I don't believe at all, because in his other, several of his other New Testament letters, when he writes, he says, I'm writing to remind you. I'm writing so that you'll recall what I taught you. So it's, it's not a far stretch at all to say what we get in the book of Ephesians is probably in large part the whole counsel of God that Paul was teaching them while he was there. With that, let's go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to overview it briefly. It's one of those books that's very easy to see the outline. Um, there's a key verse and, and then another one that's maybe key with a, with a smaller K, but the key verse of the entire book is Ephesians 1 verse 3. Look at that with me. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We need to feel that. I mean, this, this is the, the, the book flows out of this. What does he say? In Christ, you have all you need. Everything, all. Now, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians unpack that. So chapter one, two, and three, here's what you got. Here's all he's given. Here is, as many will say, here, here's all your wealth in Christ. Chapter one, two, three. And then the book turns in chapter four, verse one, which I would consider another key verse. Look at chapter four, verse one. Paul says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. A real simple outline, of course, is chapters 1 through 3. Here's your wealth. It's yours. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now walk in light of your wealth. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, do you know who you are, all you have in Christ? Chapters 4, 5, and 6, allow Christ to live his life through you. You see that? That's how the book breaks out. We're going to spend 31 weeks in this book, and we're basically splitting, in, splitting it in half uh, along those lines. Paul begins the letter. We're just going to grab the first two verses this morning. Paul begins Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, when he says apostle, he, he considers himself, apostle means a sent one. All of us are sent ones in a sense. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, so there's a sense to which we're all sent. But Paul's using apostle in the restricted sense of the 12 and himself, of those who we know were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, who were personally commissioned by Christ, who we know are the foundation of the church. Those men who spoke authoritatively, and we therefore have a New Testament, you see. So it's in this restricted sense. He says, I'm an, I'm an apostle. And he says, I'm that by the will of God. He introduces several of his letters this way, just to remind us, I didn't earn it. I didn't gain it. I am this by the will of God, which again is a wonderful thread that will fall all the way through the book of Ephesians. It says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just going to grab a word or two. That's all we'll have time for today. But he, he looks at these Ephesians and he says, to the saints, and we're going, Really? Saints, it's the Greek word hagios, and it, it means uh, set apart. And, you know, it, it doesn't, originally in the Greek thought, it, it didn't carry this idea of pure and sinless, but, but set apart for, for religious or divine use. And so for a Greek person to hear, you know, to the saints, to the set apart ones, and often it's translated holy ones, 
you know, that could be a guy or a woman working at the temple of Artemis. You know, they, they're, they're not working in the city, you know, at some bank. They're working in the temple for religious purposes. So they are holy and set apart. And so notice how Paul describes those he's writing to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's not saying, by the way, there are saints, there are Christians, and then there are faithful Christians. It's not two different groups. He says to the, to the saints, and it's best translated like this, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Those of you who believe in Christ, see, it's the same to those who believe in Christ. What Paul's saying is that it's, this is a theme, again, that'll go through the book, is if you know Christ, men and women, you're a saint. You are a set-apart one. You're not a saint because you don't sin. You're not a saint because you've got a clean track record. You're not a saint because of what you do. You're a saint because God says you are if you are in Christ Jesus. It's your position by the will of God, not your behavior. You know, I mean, honestly, you sit today, when you walked in church, did you walk in here going, feeling like a saint? I mean, I don't, I'm getting ready to teach, and I don't feel like a saint when I'm getting ready to teach. It, it, that doesn't, it matters, but you understand, it, it doesn't matter. You're, you're a saint because if you're in Christ, this is who God says you are. This is your position before God. If you're in Christ. Now, this, this phrase right here is going to be in front of us the whole time we're in Ephesians. In Christ. You're going to look at it next week. It'll be a different configuration, but uh, th- you know, this is going to guide us all the way through the book. It's a, it's a description of, of which, honestly, we can't even, we won't fully understand it when we're done. Klein Snodgrass wrote an excellent commentary on Ephesians, and he says this of, of this statement. This concept of being in Christ is one of, if not the most important part of Paul's theology. For this is the center from which he understood and explained salvation. He goes on to say, of the 13 Pauline letters, there are 13 letters Paul wrote in our New Testament. Of the 13 Pauline letters, he uses in Christ, in the Lord, in him, or some similar expression, 164 times. This language expresses the oneness and the identity that a believer shares with Christ. For Paul's gospel is a gospel about union with Christ. And this is the meaning in Ephesians 1.1. Ephesians focuses more on union with Christ and on being in Christ more than any other New Testament book. To, to again, give you some idea of this, in the New Testament, y'all, we, you know, those who trust Christ, are referred to as Christians three times. But the New Testament writers refer to us with words like, in him, in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, 240 times. They want us to know that in Christ, that's our truest identity that's the core of who we are if we've trusted him 
And then when we understand that, we begin to go, oh, what all does that mean? Well, you know what? I can't even answer that this morning in a sentence. That's why we're going to study the book for these weeks. But I can say this. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, but I want to suggest that living with genuine, rock-solid, biblical hope, uh, experiencing deep transformation, I'm talking change of character, the deepest parts of who we are. All of this flows from our understanding, okay? It's, it's knowing, it's an understanding, a comprehension. And I want to suggest an experience in our heart of hearts of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. One of the things we're going to find in our study of Ephesians is that most of the Christian life is about becoming more of what you already are. It's kind of weird, isn't it? But wait, wait I'm already that. What? Well, the whole Christian life is really about you and I becoming more of what we already are in Christ Jesus. The Christian life is about accessing, engaging more and more of what we already have. We already have, yeah, but we got to access it more and more. That's the Christian life. Do you know in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there is not one single command. He doesn't tell us to do anything for three chapters. Not one imperative, not one command. Wait, wait, I thought being a, I thought being a Christian meant you do Christian things. I thought being a Christian meant you obey the law. I thought being a Christian meant you, you have these duties and you do them. Well, you thought wrong. Or at least this, I'll say it this way. You know, when we think that way, you're thinking out of order. You're thinking out of order. See, because the Christian life, oh my goodness, it, it, it entails, you know, things we do. Absolutely. But the things we do flow from who we already are in Christ Jesus. Before Paul ever gets to chapter 4, okay, in chapter 4 we notice he begins to, he gets 36 commands. <laughs> There's stuff to do. But before he ever gets there, he, he gives no commands, but he does pray two prayers. I mean, he wants something so bad for the Ephesians that he breaks into these prayers. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Just feel the content and the weight of this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He's again, he keeps writing and then he can't help himself. He's not going to tell him what to do, but he's going to pray again. Look at chapter three, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Listen, he's praying that they'll know something. And what does he deeply want them to know? How much Christ loves them. Take the first three chapters. What does he want them to know? You've got everything when you have Christ. I mean, his heart is beating for them to to, to just begin to taste and know all they have. First and foremost, the Christian life. Ephesians is going to hammer this in us. The Christian life is about trusting what God has done receiving all that God has already given, uh, accepting all that God has secured. And then from that place of, um, from that place of fullness, you see, oh yes, then we, we obey. But do you understand genuine Christian obedience is a response, not of duty, but of gratitude. And I'd say this to you, and I mean it. If you're doing the Christian thing, if you're obeying God, and, it's, it, and you're just doing it out, it's a grind. Stop it. Stop it. Because that's not faith. That's not even the Christian life. Get back to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and grasp and comprehend and know the surpassing greatness of his power in you and the love for which Christ loves you. And from this place, when you turn to obey, listen, it's not duty. It's just thank you that I get to do this because of all you've given and done for me. We will hit a number of themes as we go through Ephesians. Uh, one that certainly will predominate our first three chapters. And I'm just grabbing it even from the first two verses when he says, to the saints, when he names who they are, would be this, and I'll end here. Uh, you're, you are not what you do. You are what God says you are. not what you do. You're what God says you are. I've got three kids, 18, 15, and 12. And I would say to you that for Lisa and I, our, our greatest you know, burden right now, if I could say this, it, you know, the parenting challenge is not obedience. Okay, now, not that, not that they don't need to obey. <laughs> not that we don't work on obedience. All, you know, let's obey. Uh, that's, not the, that's not the burden of our heart, not, not with our kids at this age. You know, you know what burdens us? Is that my kids would understand and believe what God says about them. I'm telling you, if I could crawl into their head and I could just go, you know how beautiful. Do you know that your body's just how God made it? Do you know how precious you are to him? Oh, do you understand that? Do you understand that all that God has given you and he's all you need? 
And you're defined not by what your friends say and not by what the world says, but by who God is and what he says about you. I just want you to get that. And if you'll get that, you'll live. And it's like, get it, you know? And then I go and look in the mirror. And I think about my own life. Lloyd, do you understand? I think about my heavenly father. Oh, how patient, how patient he is with me as he continually tells me, do you know all you have in the beloved? It's yours. Wanda Bell got an unbelievable deal on a picture frame. She got exactly what she wanted. She had no idea what she possessed. When you and I put our faith in Christ, we get exactly what we want. But do we really know? I'm talking the way Paul prays here. Know that you know all that we possess in Christ. You know, my hope is over the next 31 weeks that Bill, Michael, and I would pray that all of us, including ourselves, would in time come to actually know what we're holding and what is ours and that it's surpassing, that it's unfathomable. I want to pray for you as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, if I may. Um, I've got to believe that what I feel for my kids right now and what I so desperately want them to know, certainly Paul felt that when he wrote to his children in Ephesus. And it comes out in his prayers. And I'd like to pray that for you. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray with Paul that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that each one of us will know what is the hope of your calling what are the riches of the glory that is yours in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. We cannot get there on our own. We could study this book till we're blue in the face and know it front to back, but apart from your spirit enabling and enlightening our eyes and opening our minds to grasp these truths, we are helpless. And so we cast ourselves upon you in this day, in these days. Grant, Lord, we would know what is ours in Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. I've got one word to tell you as you leave. Um, we did produce a booklet for you for, to study through Ephesians. Now, this is only the first three chapters. It's, you know, it's six chapters. So we couldn't get them all in. 
And the reason we did this as we did for Jonah was to enable you to have something that you could study from. So this, I want you to know, this is not just for you to bring on a Sunday and then take notes as we're teaching. It's, it's for you to, during the week, you know, you've got the text on the left side, the text we're studying. Here's what we're studying next week, one, three, one, three through six. Here's the text. Here's all this space around it. You can observe it. You can make notes to yourself. And then you can come in and take your notes yourself. Now, we've also got on the front end of this, some resources for you to go to the website where you can download, we've got something, there's something called a Faith Life uh, Study Bible that's wonderful. Put it on your phone and it's got study notes and it's why we didn't put study notes in this one. Because we'd rather, you can get those in other places. Does that make sense? Um, uh, Bible.org is another uh, wonderful website. You can go to ESV study, ESVbible.org. All these are, are tools that we want you, to, you know, to, to use as we study Ephesians. We'll add stuff to the web page, you know, if you go to that web page as we're going through the book. Um, if you are one of those people, you know, we know everyone's not like this, okay? But if you, if you want a booklet like this, because you kind of like keep it in your Bible and you want to keep your notes, that's why we have them. If you, if you want one, grab one on the tables as you leave. We've got a little box out there if you want to throw a few bucks in there to help defray some of the cost on these things. We didn't print as many. Remember in Jonah, we gave everybody one? We thought, you know, everybody doesn't use it, and that's okay. But if you want one, you know, don't throw more than $5 in there. Throw, throw a few dollars in there. Grab one and, and, and you can hang on to it, put your name on it. If you want the best deal in town, go to the website and download the PDF and it's yours, you know, and you'll have it. So we want you to have this resource as we move through the book of Ephesians. God bless. See you next week.